Today, I, I just prayed about it and the Lord said, uh, um, we need to talk about a topic that has to do with dealing with difficulties and dealing with trials. Um, are, are men today, here's a question for us to kind of rhetorically kick around, are men today better and well-equipped to deal with difficulties and trials? Or are we ill-equipped and, uh, you know, is this, is this generation, this younger generation, have we done a good job as grandfathers and fathers equipping our sons uh, with uh, the ability to deal with difficulties and, and to deal with it not just in a man kind of way, but in a godly biblical kind of way? That's the, that's the question that I kind of put before you. It's amazing to see what kind of difficulties uh, people have to go through. Uh, and really, no matter who you are, you're gonna probably deal with trials and tribulations and difficulties. And here's another one that's kind of interesting. The more godly you are, probably the more difficulties you'll go through. That's what the Bible teaches. So what do you do with that? And, and what should be our mindset? Um, when I think of a guy who had a tough day, uh, I think of a guy that I met down in Honduras. I was teaching at a pastor's conference. It sounds fa fancy and stuff, but it wasn't. It was like a hut with about 150 uh, pastors. And, and man, I just remember being there and it just rained like I'd never seen rain the whole time I was there. Just And like Portland doesn't know what rain is, uh, if you can imagine that. But in Honduras, man, it was just, just like buckets of water. And I was teaching and there was this tin roof, you know, and so the rain would go and I'd have to kind of yell. To it, was, it was quite a scene. But after the conference, I sat down with this one um, Gedifuna pastor um, and, um, and I, I asked him a question and I, I didn't expect such a response, but here was the question. Hey, how did you come to know the Lord? How did you become a Christian? And uh, uh, he said, well, one day I was, and I had a, a translator there telling me this story. So it took, it, this took about an hour to, to learn this, okay? Um, he said, I was out in the banana fields. He worked for the Dole Corporation, actually, uh, there in Honduras. And he was working out in the banana fields. And, um, you know, these down in Honduras, there's these miles and miles of banana groves, just miles of them. And, um, and he was out there, you know, I don't know what they do, but trimming or working on the trees or whatever. His village was up on this little ridge of this hillside, uh, and you could see the village. And then he was out in this huge flat, miles and miles spans of banana groves. And um, he said it started to rain. And, um, and one of the things you have to watch for is flash floods there because uh, it, it's, it's something that, you know, we don't even know uh, what it's like here to have these kinds of flash floods. Well, apparently it started raining so hard. He, he saw something to his horror. He saw up on the ridges of the mountains, water starting to gush in river-like form from the tops of the mountains. That's how much rain was coming down. And, and he thought, oh no, this is gonna be bad. So he dropped everything he was doing and he ran back up to his village. And when he got to his village, by that time, the water was knee deep throughout the whole village and it was rising. You could actually see the water rising. And he found his, his, um, his wife and his little, you know, two-year-old daughter and they, they got up uh, in, in the rafters of their uh, hut where they lived because the water was now about 10 feet deep and their whole village was 10 feet deep underwater. And then he broke a hole through the thatched roof of his hut and got up on the top of the roof um, and, uh, and was sitting there with his wife who was, by the way, nine months pregnant. His wife's nine months pregnant, uh, his little two-year daughter, two-year-old daughter, and sitting up on the ridge of his roof. And then pretty soon, they're, 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 you can't see the house. It's all underwater. 
And he said, they knew that they were gonna have to leave bail off of the house because it wasn't supporting them anymore. Now what happens with a bunch of these banana trees apparently is in these kinds of flood, the root system of these banana trees are big enough to where there's a flotation that actually uproots the banana trees. Like the banana trees are planted in the ground, but when it floods that much, the banana trees pop up and then they turn upside down and these roots are floating around. Like, so all these banana trees are starting to like float. But that's the only thing floating. And so he, he grabs his family and they jump on a banana tree root. And they're, they're floating around on this banana tree root. And, um, and he, he explained to me how at, suddenly all these wild animals were looking for places to go to. Like, um, he, and, and he, the only thing he had on him was, a, this is a true story, uh, MacGyver, he had a Swiss army knife uh, in his pocket. And the reason he pulls that out is because he had everything from a panther tried to get up on the route that he was on. He was there with a Swiss army knife trying to shoo away the, the panther. Um, and also a deadly snake. He, he said there was a snake that kept trying to get on his route and he's like trying to fend that off. And, 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 he, and all the while his family's floating. Right at that point, his wife, her water breaks. And she, she goes into labor on this banana root. Um, and there she is, you know, laboring and he's fighting off these animals and they're just floating off into oblivion. Um, and the wind starts picking up. Uh, and as it turns out, you might remember, do you guys remember Hurricane Mitch? That's the one. It was quite a few years back, Hurricane Mitch. It was a big one though. It was a really bad one. And he was in the middle of Hurricane Mitch on a banana root with his family. Well, they survived the storm floating on this route. Uh, the baby came, he literally cut the umbilical cord with his Swiss army knife of his, of his child. Uh, true story. Um, so they're floating there. Finally, after two days, two days, um, this helicopter comes up and they're rescuing all these people that you know, survived this hurricane down there. And, um, but the problem was um, that the helicopter was already jam packed full of people. Um, they only had room for really one more person. They said, only one more, uh, there's no more room. Literally, they, so they took up Hosolina's wife uh, with one of those little you know, baskets and, and they, they said, go ahead and bring the, ba the baby to and the, the daughter. So they, they barely were squeezing into this helicopter, hanging on, and, but they, had, they threw Hosolina down some food, like just because he'd been you know, really hungry. They threw a bunch of food down and they said, we'll be back and they flew off. The water, there was no land in sight. It looked to him like he was out in the middle of the ocean. You couldn't see any ridges or mountains. That's how far he had floated out to sea or whatever, wherever he was. And there, he just sat there for another two weeks. True story, two weeks. He almost died. Fortunately, the food sustained him uh, and they dropped him, I think, some water. Um, but uh, it, the, the, there was just too many people to rescue and they couldn't find him. But finally the hurricane water level started to drop and he, he finally saw land. And so he, with the last bit of his energy, bailed off of his banana root after two weeks and, um, and was able to float off to shore. Uh, the story gets even kind of crazier. I don't have time to tell you all the details, but he ends up splatting in the mud at the edge of the shore and he just passes out. When he wakes up, the sun's shining, the birds are chirping, and he's just in the mud and he, and, he, and he feels in his hand this strange object in the mud and he realized it's, it's a bicycle tire uh, in the mud. And he, and he thinks that's odd and he kind of starts digging and as, as it turns out, it was a legitimate bicycle. He dug out the bicycle, rinsed it off and he kind of carried it up out of the mud and, and he found you know, an old road and just started pedaling. 
uh, and he pedaled the bicycle into what, what eventually was um, the, one of the main cities there. When he got there, uh, the hospitals were packed. He was trying to find his family and he actually found his, his wife, his daughter and their newborn baby sort of in a triage care right in the middle of the street of the main street there of town. Um, and so there he was, he was reunited with his family and, um, and he was just sitting there and he said he had never felt such despair because everything he knew, everything he owned, everything he had was just, is nothing. He just had his family sitting in the middle of a street there in um, Honduras. Um, it was at that point, um, this, this uh, American guy in this little white pickup comes driving up and he walks in and he finds this family and uh, he says, can I help you guys? Now this happens to be, this guy is the guy who invited me to come speak at this pastor's conference. One of my high school buddies from back in the old days who became a missionary in Honduras, uh, Matt McCollum. And Matt drove his little truck into town and the Lord said, you need to help a family and, and I'll lead you to this family. That's what the Lord told Matt. So Matt's like, okay, I'm gonna find a family, I'm gonna help him. And he found this family, Joselina, his wife, his now two children. <laughs> um, and he, he scoops them up, puts them in the truck, brings them to the mission base there in, uh, in Honduras and, uh, and ministers to them. And it was at that point that, um, uh, you know, Joselina had never seen such kindness. And Matt just said, you know, you need to have Jesus as a part of your life. That's the only way to get through this life and especially with what you've been through. And this guy and his whole family, they start weeping and they accepted the Lord and, and became Christians. And shortly thereafter, he became, uh, went into the pastoral training school and became a pastor within three years of a church in Honduras. That's the story of Joselina. Next time you have a bad day, just remember old Joselina there in Honduras. Uh, that's a tough day at the office right there, you know. Uh, uh, but it's a true story that is um, almost miraculous. And when you hear him tell it, it's, it's, it's even more gripping. But, but here's the thing. Um, I, I have a, an advantage and a disadvantage, and, and I, I probably oversell this one uh, because I, I have such respect for the men that I got to grow up around. But I grew up in a, in a, not only in a group of men, but a, a group of men in a church that I didn't realize really what I had around me as a young man growing up. Um, I thought all men were like the men that I got to grow up around. My pastor, my dad, um, you know, the elders in our church, uh, the people that were ministering in our church. I, you know, I just was surrounded by these, um, what I would now realize they're all kind of pillars of, uh, of you know, manhood, uh, biblical manhood. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, I think even to this day, I still get caught off guard with men's behavior when I see it. Uh, and I just go, oh, that, that's so unfamiliar to me. Um, weird stuff. And, and I know this might sound really condescending. I don't mean it to sound this way, but like when men are shaken by things that are really small, you know, and I see men kind of you know, complaining and, and, and griping and grumbling about some of the smaller things. And I think, man, I, that's so foreign to me. I, I, I know this sounds weird, but things have happened to me. Like I've been in meetings, you know, like big meetings where a man got so upset, he just got up and marched out of the, the meeting. Um, and I, I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. I never saw a man get so hot and bothered that he huffed out of a meeting like a little ninny uh, it just, it just <laughs> struck me as so odd. And I, the, guy, the guy even said, can I leave? And I said, no, we're not done here. Like, like I wasn't being rude. I was, just, I was just like, this is new information. I've never seen a guy 
act like that before. Um, so it, like, it's strange to me. I still see some of those things and I think, man. Now I've had to over the years sort this out and realize, wow, I think that the guys that I grew up around, they're the exception. And it has to do with men and the way they view difficulties and trials and how they handle trouble. And, you, you know, um, I think that maybe, and maybe, I don't know, this isn't a sociological study that I've done, but I think maybe there's a, there's a previous generation in general. There's always the, the guys that didn't deal with difficulty well. But I think that the ratio of men who knew how to face difficulty and trials, maybe in a previous couple generations, they handled stuff differently than I think today's man generally deals with it. And, and I'm not sure why, it has probably something to do with the, the feminizing of men today uh, and, and us sort of acting, I'm not meaning this to be a joke or mean, but uh, men are, are sort of acting more like women today. Um, that's, just, that's just what I often see. Um, it makes me nervous, like why is that happening? Is it, is it because our culture doesn't like masculinity? They, they even have a word for it, toxic masculinity. Um, now there is such thing as, as of course men behaving badly, but when you put a label like toxic masculinity on men, suddenly that's sort of demeaning masculinity. Um, and our culture celebrates the more feminized sort of version of a man. Um, did, did you guys, did you guys see? Oh, I shouldn't be saying this stuff. Is this recording right now? Uh, um, did you guys see a couple of years back, they were doing a study on the Willamette River. Good news, the Willamette River is more um, uh, clean than it was, you know, 10 years ago. And, and, you know, whether you can eat fish out of the Willamette and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's good, you know. I remember doing baptisms 25 years ago in the Willamette and uh, it was like, whoo, this water stinks, but oh well, here it goes, you know. Uh, we're putting some more sins in this river here, but uh, whoo. Um, but now the, the river's very pristine. In fact, they, the, the study said that the Willamette River water was as good as the drinking water in New, New Jersey. That's what it said. But the one thing that they were troubled by here in the Portland study of the Willamette River water quality was all the, now this is all the um, estrogen uh, drugs that people are taking these days uh, for various uh, health issues and stuff. There's so much estrogen in the medicine that people are taking, even though the water is you know, filtered through the septic systems and the water filtration and all that, they found a fairly large amount of estrogen in, in the river water. And the study found that the fish, many of the fish were, um, there, I forget the term they use, but the, the male fish were having female characteristics uh, because of so much uh, estrogen. Did anybody see this study? It was quite a few years ago, but I remember thinking, ooh, I'm not swimming in the Willamette. <laughs> uh, that, sounds, that sounds like it might uh, not be a good thing. Um, but, but the, you know, they're, they're saying it feminizes fish. Uh, I wonder, maybe that's the answer why Portland's so, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's our drinking water. No, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not saying that's real. I just, that is what the study said. But, but, but what, what we need is to step back and say, um, maybe personally, individually, how do I deal with trials and difficulty? Do I deal with it um, in, in sort of the modern culturally relevant way of doing it with uh, you know, being super sensitive and, and feeling and, and, and trying to you know, nurse our way through a, a situation? Or are we more you know, World War II generation, put your head down and just deal with it. Face it, deal with it, 
and, and muscle our way through the challenges and difficulties? How does our family view the way we handle this? Do my kids, when they see trouble, do they see a, a, a man that is setting his face like flint to the Lord and trusting in the Lord and realizing that all these things are gonna make us better and stronger? Or do my kids see a, a dad that's, oh no, what are we gonna do? And honey, what do you think? What should we do? And, and I, I don't know. Uh, you know, what are, we, what are we projecting to our kids and our, our families? Um, again, I refer to that thing I mentioned, what was it, The Unit, a TV show that was up a few years back, and I'll never forget this one uh, officer was trying to control this outpost that was under attack, and when, when, the, when the elite unit got there, everybody's kind of panicking, and the commanding officer was like, ah, and didn't know what to do, and the, the unit came in, and, and the leadership of the, of the main guy was awesome. He, he comes in smiling, bullets zinging by his head. He's like, you need to project leadership here, you know, and he smiles, and and he just walks through and, and everybody's like suddenly following him because of his confidence. I feel like the church, we need those kind of guys. Guys that are, are, are truly putting our trust in the Lord and we're not easily moved and we're not easily freaked out or worried or stressed out. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that anxiety and stress is a very real part of life. And I do think that some people have a uh, greater proclivity towards stress. We see that in the Bible. And I think David, for example, was one of those guys. But David knew how to handle stress and he pressed through it. We know that because he was a military hero. Uh, he went through the most stressful of situations, but he made it through those times. Um, it's not that we deny that bad things are happening or stressful times are coming, but the idea is to, to know how to deal with trials and tribulations. Um, and for us as men to perhaps go back a generation or two to uh, how we deal with stress. Uh, it, it's interesting because um, really, uh, I think Romans is where I'd like to start. Why don't you turn with me in Romans uh, chapter uh, five. Paul the apostle was one such man that I think we could use as an example of how to deal with trials and troubles you know, it's, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be tough and be men. That's not what I'm saying. I would say for us to pull ourselves up by the biblical bootstraps and say, what does the Bible tell us about trials and troubles? And, and, and first of all, it's a mindset. There's a mindset involved here that Paul the apostle has that I think we need to kind of start with this mindset. Uh, some of us, oh, I don't want anything to happen, and I worry, oh, what's going to happen? What if, I ha what if I get fired from it? Oh, no, what if I get fired? Uh, what happens if my finances are, what happens if I get cancer? What happens if someone dies? You know, and, 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 and we worry and worry. But Paul, he starts out with a mindset. Before anything happened, what did he say? It's Romans chapter 5. Right here, uh, we'll start in verse 3. In Romans 5, 3, it says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that the tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Man, I love this. Um, Paul just says, we rejoice uh, or glory in tribulation. Um, bring it on, Paul's saying, why? 
Paul knew that tribulation ends up building us. It builds these things. It says it builds you know, patience, verse four, experience, and then experience brings about hope. And then when you have the hope and patience and experience, hope makes you not ashamed. Bad behavior in trials and tribulation makes you ashamed. And I think a lot of times we as men today, we find ourselves ashamed because we don't feel like we handled things very well or we, we didn't step up to the plate. And I think there's a lot of shame in men today because they don't know how to deal with tribulations and trials. But the old school biblical guy holds his head up high, not because of his own pride, but he's not ashamed because he was able to deal with the trial, deal with the trouble in a biblical godly kind of way. Hope makes not ashamed because the love of God, God's got you. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. And then I love this because some of you might say, but Brad, I'm not that strong of a man. Guess what? That's good. It says here in, in verse six, for when we were yet without strength, in, it says there, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's one of my favorite lines, by the way, uh, in, in maybe all the book of Romans. There's a lot of great ones, but um, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The reason I love that one is Satan never accuses me of being godly. Brett, you're so godly. Now, maybe he would if he was trying to get me to be prideful or whatever, but most of the time, Satan's like, Brett, you're so ungodly. You are such a loser spiritually. Satan's accusing the brethren day and night. That's you and me. Satan wants to accuse you as a guy that just doesn't measure up or is not spiritual enough or whatever. And guess what? You're ungodly, but it says in due time, Christ died for that person. That's us. The Lord loves us so much that he died for the ungodly. Um, uh, man, I love that. Well, all that to say, you know, this, this rejoicing or glorying and tribulation, that's what Paul, his mindset was to say, bring it on. Because these trials are gonna make me better. They're gonna sharp, sharpen me with patience and experience and then hope, you know. And, um, and so, so the thing is, why are we going through trials? Why do we go with, through difficulties? And there's some things I wanna kind of share with you guys about this, just a few things. Uh, and you can jot them down maybe in your notes uh, and think about them and pray through it a little bit. But the first thing um, is... Um, Paul going through difficult times. Number one, trials and tribulations are a surety. It's a sure thing. It's gonna happen in your life. And if you're a young man and you haven't gone through really big trials and troubles, hang on, you will. It's just part of life. Life brings you difficult days. Trials are a surety. Satan um, uh, is gonna try to mess with you. By the way, do you guys remember the four spiritual laws? Uh, one of those four, four spiritual laws, I remember as a kid, uh, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's true. But I think there's a fifth spiritual law that they left out. Satan hates your guts and wants to kill you. That's a, that's a law right there. Satan, he's the accuser. He's the destroyer. He wants to mess you up. And one of the things that I think Satan will often do is try to um, trouble you and, uh, and whisper in your ear, you're not gonna make it and you're going down. And, and Satan is, I think, more of an author of fear. Uh, is fear something the Lord wants us to have? Well, it depends on what kind of fear you're talking about. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. But the idea of being afraid uh, is not really godly. He's not giving us over to that spirit of fear, but of you know, love, power, and a sound mind. Um, so this idea of trials, uh, jot down 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through uh, 28, let me just read it to you. 
It says here in um, 2 Corinthians 11, 23, it says, um, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. He said, I'm more of a minister than anybody. Um, he says, in labors are more abundant in stripes. Now that's not stripes like military stripes. That's like whipping stripes on his back. This is what Paul had to deal with. He said, I was whipped in stripes above measure, in prison more frequent, in deaths oft. How many can people say, yeah, I've dealt with death several times. Paul was left for dead. Maybe even did die and came back. Uh, there's a, a theory that, remember the vision of heaven that Paul had? Maybe that's when they stoned him to death and left him for dead. But then he came back. Um, he says also, verse 24, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. For you Portlanders, that means with rocks. Um, just, a, just a heads up there, guys. Uh, once I was stoned, Paul said. Three, uh, three times I suffered shipwreck. Um, and night and day have I been in the deep. That means for like 24 hours, he was floating in the ocean, the, Medi the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this, Paul knew what suffering is. See, the reason I share 2 Corinthians here with you is because, it, well, it even goes on, verse 26, in journeys often, perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of mine own countrymen, his Jews that were hating him, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, in perils among the false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness, beside those things that were without, which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Like Paul, he's saying, listen, I know what trouble is. I've been through trials. And I think it's great that Paul's the one saying, I rejoice in tribulation, because nobody in this room, I think, could say, well, Paul, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand the suffering. You know, you're, you're, you're the one saying, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. No, well, Paul, he's, he's the guy that can say this. Paul, if there's anybody who can say it, Paul's saying, yeah, shipwrecked, dead, stoned, um, you know, hated, uh, despised, uh, all these things, whipped with, uh, with these uh, flagellum, probably the same kind of whip that Jesus was whipped with. So Paul, he's saying, listen, trials and tribulation, that's part of the deal. Um, in 2 Timothy 3.12, the Bible says this, all who live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution and trouble. That, that's, that's a promise of God's word. Name it and claim it. It's funny how we love to name the promises that are so positive, but we don't like to, you know, stick on our mirror, the memory verse, you know, those who live godly will suffer persecution. That's a promise of God's word. Um, you know, Jesus taught us in Luke chapter nine, verse 23, he said, you know, take up your cross daily and follow me. Um, what does it mean to take up your cross? Well, a cross is a burden. A cross is something that's not fun. A cross implies suffering and challenges. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Um, First Peter chapter four, verse 12. Uh, interestingly enough, it says this in First Peter 4, 12. It says, um, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice 
inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So interesting, it says here that, you know, you and I shouldn't be shocked or think it's a weird thing. Why am I going through trouble? Have you ever noticed that, that that's the, the general attitude when we go through trials? Why am I going through this? Um, I think the wise man gets to a place in his life when he says, why not? Why wouldn't I be going through trials? Why wouldn't I be going through troubled times? Um, we, we think somehow in our entitled culture, um, in, a, in, a, in a, a world that says you and I deserve to be comfortable and happy. And, you know, uh, we, even in our, our nation, you know, we believe in, um, you know, the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if that gets challenged in any way, shape, or form, suddenly, you know, why, Lord, why? But we, we should be saying, why not? What do we deserve? You know, um, it's like that old Charles Haddon Spurgeon saying, hey, as long as you're not in hell and burning for all eternity, if you're still alive and not in hell, rejoice, be glad. So when the car breaks down, uh, when, when the, the, the boss doesn't pay you, when you get to the doctor and they say cancer, uh, when, when, when things are difficult for you and for your family, don't think that's strange. So you know what, this is, this is the way it's gonna go. The Bible promises this. One of the reasons I think that modern day church doesn't deal with trials very well is we've wrongly preached that when you become a Christian and the gospel of Jesus means you accept the Lord uh, and you become a Christian and then from that day forward, your life is gonna be rosy. Uh, now, now, I understand why we've preached that way because the, the real true Christian we do feel like even with the trials, we're like, man, my life is so much better knowing Jesus and having the hope of heaven. Like that is true. And so when we preach the gospel, we say, hey, if you accept Christ, man, your life will change. You'll have joy in your heart. That's all true. But we also do say you might have joy, but you also might have cancer and you might get fired from your job and, and people might hate you for that. Um, the Bible's very clear that, that those bad things will still happen. It's just that as a Christian, like Paul, I rejoice in tribulation. Um, bring it on, Lord. You know, it's, it, whatever you want for my life, as bad and painful as it might be, I need to learn to just say, I'm trusting that God knows exactly what he's doing. Um, take up my cross, walk with the Lord daily. Don't think it's strange when trials happen to me um, as some strange thing has happened to me. But rejoice, it says. Why should we be shocked? Um, do we think we deserve anything else? That's the problem. And I have to apologize to our young people. In fact, I'm gonna say young, meaning millennials all the way down, Gen Z. Uh, I'll tell you why, because you know, millennials get this bad rap all the time. You know? um, and they, I don't hear it as much now because the millennials are the older people now. <laughs> uh, but do you remember when millennials were constantly being bashed? And it was always millennials being bashed by Gen Xers, which is my generation. Um, and, and I always kind of thought about that for a second. Wait a minute, Gen Xers, aren't they your kids? Like you're the ones who raised them to get the blue ribbon, stupidly. Um, remember everybody got the blue ribbon, everybody got the trophy for participation. We did that to the millennial generation and, and it still happens you know, to this Gen Z generation. And so I apologize, like, like, um, but, but one thing I'd like to undo if I could is this idea of, of entitlement, that I'm entitled to you know, a, a perfectly peaceful, happy life. 
Because that's just not true. And we've believed that, that, that you know, we think we deserve somehow no trials and no troubles. But if you are equipped as a man of God and you know what the Bible says, you know trouble is coming. And we're not gonna be shocked by that. Um, it may not, not have reached you yet if you're you know, 16 years old. Maybe you haven't had trouble yet. You will. Well, Brett, that's kind of scary. Well, sometimes you know, it's best to start saying, well, I need to become the man that's gonna be able to face these things and be the strength and to be the leader through those trials. And so starting to equip yourself today to be ready for the trial of tomorrow. We'll talk about that equipping in a second. Um, you know, it reminds me of that story um, in the 1950s, um, a um, instructor there at West Point was instructing, you know, the, the, the um, soon to be, you know, officers um, about uh, survival. He had a class on how to survive out, you know, uh, without food and all this stuff. And, you know, the guy was an expert, but he, he noted that there was something that happened um, and it happened to be that he, he, his, the guys were yawning in his class and they were all kind of hemming and hawing and they, they wouldn't study and they were barely passing his class. And, you know, and he just thought, man, how do I get these guys? Suddenly, all of a sudden, um, one year he started teaching and, and the guys were taking notes very specifically and, and you know, uh, writing and then asking questions afterward and acing the test. What was the difference? A little thing called Vietnam. Once, once those you know, military officers knew they could end up in a jungle somewhere for real, they started listening to the survival guy because what he was talking about had something to do with total reality. The, the, the point is, I think for you young men, you need to equip yourselves right now um, because the battle's coming um, and it's real and Satan hates you and wants to mess you up. And the Lord will allow even trials. Sometimes it's not Satan. Sometimes the Lord allows struggles in our lives because he's building hope, patience, and experience. So to equip yourself is important. Why? Because trials are a surety. It's a sure thing. It's gonna happen in your life. The question might be for you is, am I gonna be ready when that happens? Um, we'll talk about that in a second, what readiness is. Number two, Trial, so number one, trials uh, you know, and tri tribulations are a surety. They're a sure thing. Number two, trials and tribulations lead to maturity. You'll never know how far along you are in your maturity, in your faith, in your biblical manhood than when you're beaten up. There's something about going through trials and troubles and getting beaten up once in a while. You start to grow and you realize where you are. It's like a gauge. Remember the guy in school that thought he was so tough and thought he could take anyone and then they got in a fight and some little dude pounds the big guy or you know, the guy that thought he was so tough and he, the guy just didn't know how to fight but he thought he was so good. But you know, there's always those guys that know and then don't know. Um, yeah, but but the, the, the proof is in the pudding. I, I think that that's like our Christian faith. I, I'm pretty good with life. You know, I've got an Instagram account and I'm an influencer and I'm living life large. <laughs> but when the trial comes, how much of that influencing will really help you? Will you really survive the challenging things of this life? Um, you know, uh, I love, go to James chapter one, flip over there with me. I love how James puts this um, because he's also talking about equipping uh, young men to be 
ready for this stuff. It's James chapter one. This is where we're gonna take a look here. Again, under this category, trials and tribulations lead to maturity. It, it, it leads to maturity. Check this out. James chapter one, verse two. Like Paul, he says, verse two, my brethren, count it all joy. Same thing as rejoicing. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now the word temptation there, by the way, uh, can also be translated um, trial or you know, tribulation um, is the idea here. Um, knowing, verse three, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. This King James language is a little tricky there in verse four when it says let patience, so, so trials and troubles brings about patience. And then patience brings about a perfect work that you might be perfect. The word perfect there uh, in the, the Greek word can also be translated to the word mature, uh, full maturity, uh, perfect, because you say, Brad, nobody's perfect. But that's not really what James is saying. Uh, the word perfect is maybe better bringing yourself to full maturity. But let patience have a perfect work that you may be mature and entire. The word entire there means complete. Um, are you matured and complete? If not, let the trials and the troubles that come your way start working the maturity into your life that you desperately, that I desperately need. If you and I approach it saying, oh no, here's a problem, why me? That, that's gonna be a waste of time. <clears throat> but if you say, hey, here comes a trial, Lord, mature me through this trial. Give me patience through this trial. Help me to trust you and, and equip me to make it through um, you know, this trial. And then he, I love what James, he goes on and says, but if any of you lack wisdom, verse five, let him ask of God. I love that, that next section there. But, but the point is, um, James agrees with Paul, rejoice or glory in tribulations. Why? Because it builds you uh, and it strengthens you and it matures you. Um, and and that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. When bad things happen, are you mature enough to handle those things? Are you equipped? Do you have the tools and the skill sets as men to get through those difficult times? The old saying is true, Christians are like tea bags. You'll never know what you're made of until you're put in hot water. <laughs> and I, I know guys like that. You know, we all talk a, a good game, but when you're in hot water and you're in real trouble, that's when you see what you're really made of. Um, so, you know, if you're beaten down, if you're going through troubles, good things can come from it. And you have to acknowledge that. That's part of the thing that can help you get through that trial, that difficulty saying, you know what? Good things are gonna come from this. Um, there's some pictures, by the way, not to get overly uh, uh, spiritual or deep about this, but um, if you wanna do an exhaustive study of this, there's, there's things in the Bible that talks about um, uh, the, the, the Lord, you know, pounding away, I should say. Um, remember how you and I are um, called to be the light in the world? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, you are the lights. What, what single thing in the Old Testament pictures Jesus as the light of the world and us being the lights in the world? Anybody? Huh, somebody? Nobody? The candlestick in the, in the, in the uh, holy place. Remember that? 
Now, this is an interesting thing. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The, the candlestick or the menorah there in the, in the you know, tabernacle and then later in the temple was, you, you've seen them, the Jewish menorah. It's, it's one post with a light on top, but then there's branches that come out. And depending on which one you have, whether it's like a Hanukkah menorah or whatever, there's different numbers. But, but all that to say, there's oil in the little oil lamp that's sitting on a stand. That's why it's called a lamp stand or a candlestick holder, if you would. The oil of the little thing sitting on top of the, of the little platform and then the branches going out. And the picture, you know, the Old Testament is pictures. Remember we talked about types and pictures. Um, Jesus is the light of the world, but I'm the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says, but we also get to reflect his light. Like there's a great picture of what the church is supposed to be. But some of the things about that, the oil, um, it, where, did the, where does the oil come from? Olive oil comes from the o- olives being beaten and crushed. Interesting picture there. Um, even the lampstand itself, was it cast in a, in a mold? Did they take all that gold? Because the lampstand was maybe the most costly of all the things in the tabernacle or the temple. Did you know the Jews actually have the gold to make the new lampstand for the, the, the next temple? Uh, the Temple Institute, they've had you know, Jewish billionaires around the globe actually put money in for the lampstand, um, but it's, it's worth over $2 billion. Like that's how much money this lampstand has got gold. They've got it all put away in a bank uh, so that when they make the temple, they can make the lampstand. They made a model of it because it would be too expensive to try to secure something like that that's worth so much money. Uh, it's kind of a funny story, but instead of pouring the gold uh, melted into a cast, how did they do it? Well, the the lampstand was of a beaten work, the Bible says, a beaten work. Exodus 25 uh, verses 31 through 36 talks about how it was of a beaten work. And and it comes through pounding and beating. And and, and it causes when the lights were flickering in the candle, the, the gold would flicker and reflect against that beaten work. If you could picture that, you know, they, they spoke of the beauty of the lampstand because it wasn't just a shiny, smooth thing, but it was, it was a, more of a sparkly light, uh, this candlestick. Beaten. Olives beaten, gold beaten. Um, <clears throat> we could talk about, you know, the, the, the pictures there of just going through those poundings that the Lord allows us to shape us to be the lights of the world. Like there's some great analogy there. There's even the the church that's persecuted in the book of Revelation called the church at Smyrna. Um, It's where myrrh was taken. They were the persecuted church, the pounded church. But Jesus had nothing bad to say about that church. All uh, uh, five of the other churches, he had like massive correction. But the church at Smyrna, the beaten church, the persecuted church, um, interesting, myrrh was where that was from. Uh, they'd, they'd take myrrh and crush it. And as they pounded myrrh, this beautiful fragrance would come from the myrrh. And uh, it's funny, the in, uh, illustration of the church that is beaten and crushed, there's a beautiful fragrance that comes from that. And it was the church that was squared away. I wonder if that's true with us. The more beaten we are, the brighter we shine. Have you guys seen that? Have you seen men in the church who've been through horrible, horrible things? You go, man, they shine pretty bright. <laughs> I know guys like that that have just been through horrible things. You'd think they'd be walking around like Eeyore, but they're running around like Tigger. What's going on with that? It has to do with this maturity and this, you know, the Lord says, I'm gonna take your, your bummers and I'm gonna turn them around and mature you and I'm gonna make you shine brightly because of the, the sufferings that you've been through. 
The olive oil was beaten. The candlestick was beaten. The church in Smyrna was beaten. But, um, but man, uh, the church shines bright when, when we go through trials and troubles. Some of us, very hesitatingly, and we've heard you know, some of the bold men of past say, what we need to pray for is persecution of the church. Ah, I'm not praying for that. But I understand what people say that because um, that might just be the thing that makes the church shine the brightest in these days. I think the church is growing dimmer and dimmer because we're losing our way. We're afraid of teaching the Bible as it stands and we're making stuff up as we go and we're losing our brightness. But a little persecution, that might just separate the men from the boys. Um, just like it did in the early church when they were persecuted. There's an old quote, I don't know who said it. Some people change their ways when they see the light. Others only when they feel the heat. Uh, you know, some of, some of you are learning by seeing the light and you follow Jesus and you just get it. Others of you are gonna have to learn when you feel the trials and the temptations. But like Peter, don't think it's strange when you encourage or encounter fiery trials, which are to, to mature you. So trials and tribulations are a sure thing. Number two, a surety. Number, number two, trials and tribulations lead to maturity. But thirdly, trials and tribulation will be a testimony. A testimony. Um, you know, I, I love, I love the, um, the beautiful testimony of going through suffering and a Christian who does that with great strength. And what happens to that, that man? He becomes this testimony of God. I feel like we lack that in our culture because we've become so weakened and we've, we've you know, we're, as men, we're, we're, you know, resigned to just step aside and let our wives be the spiritual leaders in our home. And, and we're, you know, we're going through troubles and we're just quiet and we just kind of internally try to struggle through. But instead of letting those trials do what they're gonna do, trials and tribulation can be a beautiful testimony. I remember the story there, the book of Acts, you know, where um, chapter 16, where Paul and Silas, remember they were beaten and they were chained up and they were thrown into that jail cell. I've seen the jail cell there in Philippi where they believe Paul and Silas were in, imprisoned. Um, and um, and this, this, this prison, there, there they are, what do they do? They're bloodied, they're chained to the wall and they start singing praises at midnight to the Lord. Now, I used to think they were putting on a show. This was manipulation, you know. We're gonna show that we're not broken. We're just gonna sing praises and they, they thought they've got us. But I used to think that's what it was. But I'm realizing, no, it wasn't manipulation, but it was an expectation. Paul and Silas somehow knew that their sufferings, they're being beaten and chained to that wall in the prison in Philippi. They were already rejoicing. Oh Lord, this is awesome. We just got beat and now we're chained to this wall and, the, and something good's gonna come from this because these bummers always turn into blessings. This is, this is what Paul and Silas knew. I don't think they were singing praises because they're like, huh, this'll make the Bible, Acts chapter 16. Portland guys will be talking about us singing. Uh, let's keep singing, you know, Silas. No. They were singing knowing there was a bigger picture, knowing that God was in control. They were worshiping the Lord um, in their trial and their suffering. And because of that, remember what happened? The Lord did a great thing, busted the jail doors open. All the prisoners were set free. The Philippian jailer was gonna kill himself because you lose your prisoners, you're toast. The guy was gonna kill himself, but Paul says, hey, don't hurt yourself, we're all still here. And the Philippian jailer got saved that day. And him and his whole family got baptized that day. 
And that was the beginning of a church called the Church in Philippi. Later, we read the book of Philippians to that church. One of the most glorious books in all the New Testament. You see, Paul and Silas, they knew that their bummers were about to be, you know, turned around for a blessing. First uh, Peter chapter three, verses 14 through 18, you know, um, kind of reminds us that we are to, um, you know, kind of have an answer uh, to, of what's happening in our faith. Um, the, the, the um, you know, the idea is the bummer turns out to make us bright. Number four, I'm running out of time, so we gotta keep moving. Number four, trials and tribulations will help you to, number four, know Jesus personally. Um, you know, it's interesting. We, we know how Jesus was beaten <clears throat> and we know that he went through every suffering. You know, the only one that could say, I know more about suffering than Paul the apostle in my book is, um, is Jesus himself. You know, you, you think of Isaiah 53, um, where it says in verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's all of ours. Yet we, we did esteem him stricken. He was smitten. And uh, of God, and he was afflicted, and he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the, um, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53 says, Jesus suffered uh, deeply so that we might have salvation. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through a fiery trial. Um, but they, they, they had an interesting thing happen. Do you remember when they were thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, when they wouldn't bow down to his statue? Do you remember what happened? The three dudes were thrown in the fiery furnace. It was heated seven times hotter. Uh, remember that? The buff Babylonian soldiers, they, when they went to throw them in, they got burned up. Like that's how legit this fire was. So there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in the fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar, who if I made the movie, I would, I would have uh, cast him with Don Knotts. Remember the guy from <laughs> Barney Fife? Because uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he walks up and goes, hey, hey, didn't we throw three guys in there? Uh, but the fourth guy, there's a fourth guy in there. Who's the fourth guy? And, and he said, he looks like the son of God. How he's pretty bright. He figured it out. It's true. It was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus that showed up in the fiery furnace with Shadrach. And you know, it's amazing that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the only thing that burned was the bondage, the ropes that were on their hands. The fiery trial that was meant to destroy them by the enemy was the very thing that freed them from the ropes that tied them up. And in the fiery trial, that's where they saw, they got the privilege of all the Old Testament people they were three of the guys out of a few that got to meet the pre-incarnate version of Jesus standing there in the fire furnace with them. Do you think they were enjoying that? I think the answer is yes. Well, how do we know they were enjoying it? Was it like a sauna where they were there? Oh, this feels pretty good, you know? Sweat out those, uh, you know, impurities. <laughs> no, is that what they were doing? No. Um, they, they, they were in there, their bondage was broken off and they were in there. And do you remember that Nebuchadnezzar had to say, hey, uh, you guys, come on out of there. Like if I were, just thinking to myself here, uh, if I were thrown in a fire furnace and my ropes were broken and I wasn't burning, I'd say, awesome, I'd be out of there. I'd be out of there as quick because I'm like, I'm not burning for now, but how no, what about 10 seconds from now? I'm out of here. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego seemed to just be comfortable hanging out in the fiery furnace with Jesus. 
And you think that sounds a little crazy, but some of you as men, you figured this out. I'd rather hang out in the fiery furnace with Jesus than to be just going with the flow of the world outside of the fiery furnace. When you're facing trials and troubles to say, you know what, I'm gonna embrace this. I'm here in this trial, this struggle. God's got me here. I'm gonna see him more clearly through the trial. My bondage is gonna be burnt off and I'd rather be free and following Christ in the furnace than you know, living large and being a worldly wacko. The problem is there's a lot of men that would rather be worldly wackos than to be guys in the fire. And, and remember what we read in, in, um, you know, about in Philippians chapter three, verses eight through 10. There's something that uh, Paul calls the fellowship of his sufferings. Let me read it to you. Philippians 3, verse eight through 10, it says this. Um, it says, yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for who I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul says, I've lost everything. But he says, I, I, I count that great because I have Christ. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them as dumb. Paul got to a place where all the good stuff that people long for, he says, that's all just a bunch of manure. And, and then he says that I may win Christ. I'd rather have nothing but win Christ, he's saying. And verse nine, be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the, but the righteousness which is of God by faith, listen, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. What's Paul saying? He's saying everything I was saying about the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'll, I'll take trouble and fiery trials way over uh, the world and comfort to be with Christ. But then he says, but also we have this thing called the fellowship of his sufferings. Um, you know, he says that I might know him. We will know Christ more intimately when you and I go through struggles and troubles. Trials and tribulations will help you know Jesus personally. It's part of that personal relationship that the Lord wants to have with you and with me. And so you say, okay, Brett, got it. Trials and troubles, part of the deal. And hopefully we know it's a surety and it leads to maturity, and it leaves a testimony, like Paul and Silas, they were a testimony in their trouble. People got saved because of their troubles. Trials and tribulations will help you know Jesus personally. That's all great, Brett, so you're, you're kind of saying that it's all good when you're going through trouble. Yes, and if you can have that mindset to say, um, I, I, I embrace the trouble that comes my way. Now you say, but that's great, but you talked about the equipping. How do I better equip myself? You know, those guys that were in the classroom at West Point, uh, how do I make sure that I know how to survive in the jungle? Because uh, if you're saying it's a sure thing, how do we do that? Well, there's a couple things that I can tell you, and I know that these might be just dismissed as, oh yeah, 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 do that. read your Bible and pray every day. But I hope you never dismiss that. When people say, you gotta read your Bible and pray every day. First of all, read your Bible. One of the things that will help you get through your trials and troubles is to have faith. If you have faith and you realize that God is doing everything we just talked about and you know that beyond knowing it, then suddenly nothing really moves you. You won't be moved so easily if, if you hear that you're fired 
um, or you're laid off because of the coronavirus, or you, know, you, you get that diagnosis of cancer, you won't be moved if you have that faith built up so much that you know the Lord's in control. He knows exactly what I need. He knows what's good for me. And if cancer is good for me, I'm gonna accept that. How do you, how do you get that level of faith? Well, as it turns out, let's see if you know the answer. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The only way I know to be a man that is able to be readied for the trials that you're gonna face, perfectly knowing it's gonna come, the only way you're really gonna be ready for that is to be a man of the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Your faith is not just you saying, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna believe. Nope, there's, a, there's a, a supernatural thing that happens to the man that's, that's in the word regularly. You show me a man that's daily reading the word of God, making it a part of his life, even if he doesn't understand everything he reads. If, if that's you, guess what? Join the crowd. We don't, I don't understand everything I read in the Bible. But, um, you know, especially when I was younger, I, like most of the things, like, I don't have any idea what this means. But as you read the word kind of throughout your life, something happens. One, you start to understand the word more and more, and then the dots all start getting connected. But then also supernaturally, the Lord gives you that level of faith that you and I so desperately need to survive this world. The trials and the troubles, you and I need to be men of the word so that we're men of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So equip yourselves. Young men, start early. Don't wait till you're older and, you know, well, when I get old, trouble will come and stuff. Who knows when trouble's gonna come? It might be when you're 15. Um, but you need to be a man of faith. You need to start building up that faith. You know, that's the one offensive weapon we've been given, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And I, I fear that there's a lot of men that don't know how to handle the sword. And yet they're facing battles in this life. And there they are, uh, which end do you hold again? And uh, what, 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 what scripture was that again about the, no, be, be one who's a, a wielder of the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Another thing that you can do to equip yourself is to be in prayer. Um, pray without ceasing for this is the will of God. To be a man of prayer. You know, there's something about prayer that starts to build up that faith as well. I think when you're praying for the situations that you're facing, um, you're casting your cares on the Lord. I think too many men face their difficulties, <coughs> excuse me, and they, and they look at the problem and they think, I gotta fix that. And, and, and because they think I gotta do something, <coughs> they forget that it's the Lord that actually has to do something. They forget that God is in control. They forget that God may have even allowed you to be in that situation in the first place. And there's something about prayer that puts everything in the right perspective. Lord, this situation I'm facing right now is way bigger than anything I know how to deal with. So Lord, I'm gonna cast my cares upon you. You have not because you asked not, the Bible says. And when you're facing problems and you fail to ask the Lord for help, the Lord might say, okay, good luck with that. I'll, I'll let you handle that, but <laughs> you can't. But if you're saying, Lord, I can't handle this problem, but I want you to, to be my strength and guide me through this. You know, these are the men that I grew up with, men of faith, men of the word, men of prayer. You know, um, whether it was my dad, you know, we'd, we'd be facing something as a family and my dad would just say, well, let's pray about that, always. And the family, we just bow our heads right there. Wherever we are, we could have been in the front yard talking about Frisbee and all of a sudden, Let's pray about this. Okay. And we'd all pray because it was more of a constant conversation with the Lord. 
Pray without ceasing. Be in the word, be in prayer, and be men of faith. And, and then when the trials come, you'll be equipped. You won't be easily moved. None of these things will move you. Um, it's, some people think, well, there's just brave men and then there's weak men. That's just the way people think it is. But you know what's funny is if you look at the men of the Bible, a lot of them were really weak men. What, what made them strong men? Um, consider the disciples, and this is what I'll end with. The disciples were bumbling, stumbling goofballs. Now I say that reverently. But they were, Jesus chose these guys. They were constantly afraid. Oh, we're gonna perish the water, a few little waves out in the Sea of Galilee. We're gonna die, you know, save us, Lord. Ah! You know, they're all freaking out. They're saying stupid things all the time. They're just these kind of bumbling guys. And then even when Jesus was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, man, what happened to the disciples? They took off. The only one that even sort of stayed was Peter, but he followed afar off and was warming his hands by the enemy's fire because he wanted to kind of see what was happening. And remember the little girl came to him and said, you're one of those, I am not blankety blankety blank, cock-a-doodle-doo. Like, like it's a crazy, <laughs> crazy story of just total, you know, total fear. Peter, Peter was a fearful dude. But do you remember there in John chapter 20, when Jesus resurrected and he appeared to them in that room, they were, the Bible says they were assembled in John chapter 20 for fear of the Jews. They were just big chickens in the, in the upper room hiding away and Jesus was dead, but he had rose from the grave, but they're all assembled for fear of the Jews. They're fearful, fearful, fearful. But then Jesus comes in and says, peace. And it says he breathed on them. Listen, this is the, this is the final part of being equipped as a man for trials and troubles, he breathed on them, and, uh, on them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And there they received the Holy Ghost. Now, by the way, there's these three relationships. The Holy Spirit is with you, in you, and upon you. Jesus told them, now go wait in Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. So they waited, Acts chapter one and Acts chapter two. Suddenly the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts chapter two and fills them up. And, and suddenly you've got a totally different Peter. Instead of being the Peter that's running around saying stupid stuff all the time and bumbling around as a fearful guy and doubting and, and you know, suddenly in Acts chapter two, you got this bold, powerful preacher. What made him bold and powerful? Did he go to seminary between Acts chapter, you know, or you know, John chapter 20 and Acts chapter two? Did he go to seminary? That didn't make him a godly, faithful man. What made him a godly, faithful man is, first of all, Jesus saved him, but then he breathed on him and then he received the Holy Ghost. And then after that, you see these massively brave men who are no longer afraid of anything. In Acts chapter four, remember, they said, stop spreading this news about Jesus, they said to Peter. And Peter said to the same guys that killed Jesus, the Sanhedrin, the same guys, he said, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's a very different Peter than the one that was afraid of those guys hiding away, quivering in his sandals up in the upper room. What happened to Peter is he was filled with the Holy Ghost and the, the Spirit moved in him and gave him the words to say and how to handle massive persecution. And all those guys would end up being as bold and as brave as a man could ever be. And it was, wasn't because of some, you know, just reading a book, finding, awakening the giant within 
or some stupid thing like that. It was these guys were filled with the Holy Spirit, men of the word, men of prayer. And because they were equipped, when the challenges came, they, they stepped up and the Lord blessed them with the strength and gave them the words to say and got them through the difficulties. Well, Brett, um, I happen to know the end of the story. They hung Peter upside down on a cross and crucified him like Jesus, only upside down. Yeah, but that's a good way to go if you ask me. I mean, you're, if you're gonna go down, go down in a blaze of glory uh, serving Christ, doing what God wants you to do because really it's not about this life, is it? Um, I think that, you know, when I read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I think there may not be a, a man on the earth that exists like those men of that day. Those men faced trials and troubles and I don't even know how they did. I think they were filled with the Spirit. I forget which one it was, the guy that was, the first century Christian martyr, he was a pastor and they told him, recant, de deny Jesus, and he wouldn't. So they, they, they took him and they, they, they fired up this huge, it was a torture device. It was meant to, to cook, slow cook a person. They'd build it with hot coals and then they had literally <clears throat> like a barbecue grill, big one, and they would strap this guy onto the grill and they'd light the fire and, and they'd slowly cook him. And he would eventually just sizzle to death. Brutal, torturous death. But in Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read about these guys. This one guy's laying on this thing. They light it up and he's just glowing, not because of the coals. His face is shining. History tells us that the people that were watching it said he, he literally was smiling and rejoicing as he was there sizzling. And they came up to him and they're like, what's going on here? And they're like trying to figure out what's wrong with their fire. And, and the guy says this, this I, I forget the exact words, but he said, he said this, he said, I think my backside is done, it's time to flip me over. That's what he said. That is a true story in history. <clears throat> Does anybody remember the name of that guy? Huh? First century guy. Uh, I forget his name. I'm gonna bring it next time because he's a great guy and should be remembered. But, but many of those first century tortured guys, they, they smiled and they worshiped and they, they withstood the worst of trials. And man, I don't know if there's a man that exists today that has that same kind of brave stick to for the Lord. We, that's what we need to do is be men of faith, men of the word, men of prayer, men of the Holy Spirit. By the way, how do you get the Holy Spirit? You fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will the Father give the Holy Ghost to what? Them that ask. Man, daily be praying, Lord, would you fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit that I might be the man you've called me to be. And when you face trials, when your kids and your wife sees you guys going through troubles, <clears throat> they're gonna see a man that is not the, you know, the, the, the disciple shaken in their sandals, they'll see the man, the disciple that's boldly declaring truth and being a bright and shining light. That's what we need, men to face trials uh, in a godly biblical way. Amen? Amen? Amen. Lord, how we pray that you'd help us <clears throat> to face trials um, in the way that your word tells us to, Lord. Um, we've accepted a culture, we've accepted a norm um, of really the um, weakening of men and for us to take a back seat and not to lead and, and for us to really be fearful men. Um, Lord, we see fear as the new virtue in our country where people are really happy to be afraid of a virus and afraid of sickness and afraid of death. But Lord, I pray that we'd be men of faith. And like Paul, we would say, we don't count our lives dear to ourselves, but we put our trust in you. 
Lord, I pray that each one of my brothers, that we would be men of your word and men of faith, Father. Help us, I pray. When the spirit is willing, maybe in this meeting right now, our spirit is willing, but we admit, Lord, that our flesh becomes weak. So be our strength. Remind us of this mindset. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't hear this word and have it go in one ear and out the other and walk out of here unchanged, but let, let your word just penetrate our hearts, Lord, I pray, that it might bring forth good fruit. We ask this, Lord, knowing you've heard our prayers, in Jesus' name, amen.